This morning's reading is from 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still... Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiliel, at Lo-Debar. And the king David sent him and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiliel, at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you, should regard, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servants do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Good morning again, Christ Central Church. Um, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to bring to you this morning God's Word. Uh, we are continuing in our series in the life of David, and this is uh, one of those passages that um, is hard to forget. I'm so excited to, to be here with you in Second Samuel 9. I'm going to pray for us again, and then we will unpack God's word together. Let's pray. Father, I know that the truth that is here in 2 Samuel 9 is weighty. And probably many in this room believe it. Um, but maybe it's a problem like Daniel talked about a few weeks ago. It's mere head knowledge that uh, we're not experiencing the weight of this truth in our lives. And we definitely need you to drive that truth deeper into our hearts. Father, I ask that you would do that for me, for each person here today. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand in Jesus' name, amen. While I was studying uh, this week, I was reminded of a scene from a movie uh, out of Africa. Um, it's an older movie starring Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. I honestly doubt many of you have seen it, 
Um, it's actually quite boring, um, which makes a lot of sense now that we know that Meryl Streep is such an overrated actress. Uh, but, but boring nonetheless, there is a famous scene uh, where the main character, uh, Karen Dennison, who's played by Streep, is trying to convince her lover, Dennis, to marry her. But old Dennis, he, he'll have nothing to do with this proposal. Uh, he simply refuses to be tied down by this archaic custom. And in that moment when he's being propositioned, he boldly declares to Karen that which she should already know. He tells her that he will not love her anymore because of some piece of paper. And what Dennis is revealing in this statement is that he believes that to be in covenant is to be confined. It's to be in bondage. And that in his opinion, the covenant actually hinders one's ability to truly love. And as we all know, this perspective is becoming more and more popular in our present society. It has become the norm for couples to live together, to have children together outside of the covenant of marriage, to simply forego this silly piece of paper. And yet what our text reveals this morning is that contrary to what Dennis says, contrary to what our society thinks, covenant may in fact be the most priceless treasure that one can possess. Because what our text reveals is that to be in covenant is not to be bound, but is in fact the place of greatest freedom and privilege. And my hope and prayer this morning is that as you begin to see covenant for what it really is, that you will abandon the lies of our culture and turn and find true rest inside God's glorious covenant. That's where we're going this morning. So I want to begin by giving you some context for our passage, chapter 9. Prior to chapter 9, King Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed in battle. Uh, they've been killed by the Philistines, and a struggle ensued between the house of David and the house of Saul, which ended in chapter 6, where David finally is appointed the king of Israel. This is what we've been moving towards for this whole series. And then as king, David conquers the Philistines, and he brings the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem, as Daniel preached about a few weeks ago. And life is good in Israel. Peace has been restored, and David is now ruling for the first time, and no one is trying to rob him of his throne. He has peace and power. And yet now as king, David has one very last important task before him. And although this task may not be obvious to those of us who are living in democracy in 2017, for an ancient Near Eastern king, this would have been obvious. David now needs to clean house. It's a scary and ugly task, but he is required to take care of all of the previous royal family. He has to wipe them out. And unless he does that, he will not have any security for his family in the future. And so chapter 9 begins with what looks like David embracing this kingly duty 
to obliterate Saul's family. Verse 1 says, David asking, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? And yet the way that David finishes this sentence turns everything on its head. He says, is there anyone left that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? What in the world is David thinking here? See, this is the worst possible move that a king could make. To show kindness to the previous royal family is to invite your greatest enemy into your house. It is to almost ensure a mutiny. Why would David go against all of wisdom and experience and set himself up for this disaster? Well, because some 15 years ago, David made a promise to his friend Jonathan, and he promised him that he would do just that. But this is no ordinary promise. This was a covenant. And I want you to listen now to the record of when this promise was made. It should be on the screen behind me. This is 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting in verse 14. Jonathan says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And then we see this covenant repeated in verse 42 when Jonathan and David are saying goodbye for the very last time. Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So David has made a covenant with Jonathan and contrary to what Dennis says in Out of Africa, the covenant was not just a piece of paper. It was a lifelong binding agreement, so much so that it compelled David to do something that odds are would cost him his kingship and probably his life. And yet David was willing to embrace that cost because to break covenant was simply not an option. And so that's the backdrop of 2 Samuel 9. And our text serves as the very application of this covenant that we just read. We're about to see what it looks like to live this out. And I want to walk through this text with you. And as we do that, I want you to place yourself inside the story. Now, if this was a school play and the teacher was asking for volunteers, we'd all be waving our hands. We want to be King David, right, in this story. But that's not who we are in this story. You and I, we are Mephibosheth, whether we like it or not. And King David is played by the person of Jesus Christ. So in order for us to really understand what's happening here, I want to challenge you to picture yourself as the lame man, as Mephibosheth, and then observe how King Jesus keeps covenant with you. That's what this text is about. Commentator Daryl Ralph Davis, referring to this text, says that as we become aware of God's covenant love, it should evoke in us three things, security, privilege, and wonder. 
Security, privilege, and wonder. It's those three things that I want to highlight this morning. The security, the privilege, and the wonder that come from living underneath God's covenant. So let's look first at this idea of security. Look again with me in the, at the text. King David is searching for any remaining descendants of Saul, and in verse 3 he finds one, a man named Mephibosheth. We know a little bit about Mephibosheth from chapter 4. We learn that Mephibosheth was five years old when his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, were killed in battle. And because of that, Mephibosheth's nurse knew they needed to skip town. They knew that Mephibosheth, being the last descendant of King Saul, he was next on the chopping block. So the nurse scoops up Mephibosheth, and they're running out of town, and she drops him, this five-year-old boy, and he breaks both of his ankles, and he's crippled. He never walks again for the, le- the rest of his life. So this is a tragic story that will bear much weight on how this plays out. So verse 3, David learns of this man, Mephibosheth, and he summons him to come to his house. There's no question here that Mephibosheth would have been terrified in coming. He would have known exactly what this meant. He was hiding so that he would not come in contact with David. That's the whole reason that they skipped town. And so now David has discovered him and he's inviting him to come to his house. And so he would have said his goodbyes to his friends and family. He was not coming back from this trip. And then David brings him in and he says these words to Mephibosheth that would have rattled him. The first thing he says is, He says his name, so he recognizes him as an individual. And then he says, do not be afraid. He says, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And what we may not see here at first glance is that in that sentence, David is offering Mephibosheth the security that he has never known before and he so desperately needs. And the reason that we so often miss this is because the Hebrew word that David uses here is very difficult to translate. The word is hesed, and the ESV that we're reading right here translates this as kindness, but I think it's safe to say that kindness doesn't carry near the weight of what David is saying to Mephibosheth. Listen to how biblical scholar Eugene Peterson defines this word, hesed. He says, what we're after is an understanding that retains the affection, desire, and intimacy that commonly go with love, as we sometimes experience as parents and children, lovers and friends, but amalgamated now with stability, dependability, unswerving commitment, and steady reliability that we so commonly find wanting in ourselves and others. Hesed is love without regard to shifting circumstances, hormones, emotional states, and personal convenience. Peterson is saying that Hesed is that emotional love that Dennis claims to have in Out of Africa, but at the same time is bound to its object. There is a lock, there is a glue that is here. Ralph Davis says it this way, Hesed is that love that is truly willing to bind itself, is willing to promise, willingly and gladly obligates itself in order that the covenant partner might be able to rest in the security of that promise. 
Hesed is not just kindness. It's kindness that you can count on. It's not just love. It's, it's covenant love. And that's the kind of love. It's the only kind of love that can produce security. And so apart from understanding this language and really this statement by David, Mephibosheth would have rightly lived in fear for the rest of his life. Sitting there at the table with David, waiting for him to change his mind, go back on his word, and do what a king should do and kill him off. But because David promises him covenant love, Mephibosheth has that security. He knows that he's safe. I've often heard it said that as human beings, our deepest longing is to be known and loved. And yet we live in constant fear because we don't have full assurance of that knowledge and love. This is evidenced by how your blood pressure rose when you came into church this morning. I know it did. You began to wonder, do my clothes look all right? Are my kids well enough behaved? Have I put on too much weight? Is my job important enough? Is my conversation going to be interesting enough to this person? Does my breath stink? Is my fly down? You guys get it. We laugh, but it's real. We're afraid. We're afraid that if we are truly known, we won't be loved, and so we live in fear. We call that insecurity. It's the absence of security. But we go back to our movie in Out of Africa. Dennis tells Karen, all the security you need is found in your experience of my love. We don't need an agreement. We don't need a document. All we need is love. And yet for Karen in this movie, that doesn't seem to produce the security that she's longing for. Why not? Why doesn't that work? Well, if you watch the movie, what you see is that she has these past experiences with men that are not very good. Her first husband hurt her deeply, and he failed to care for her and love for her. So her love was unsure. She had doubts. And the truth is, you and I have been hurt as well. We have doubts. Maybe for you it was your parents, those who God created to love and care for you. Maybe they failed to love you. Maybe it was a spouse who's no longer with you or a childhood friend or a neighbor or a classmate. The truth is all of us have been hurt by people that were supposed to care for us. And because of those hurts, we walk in fear and insecurity. And that's why we come to this text because the good news is there's hope for us here. Although our experience in this world is hurt and people constantly letting us down, our text is saying that there is true and lasting security to be found in the context of covenant. So unique to the Bible, contrary to other world religions, we have a God who is making promises to us. It's a humbling thing. He doesn't have to do that. But what we see throughout the scriptures is that God is humbling himself and he's covenanting to us. He's saying, I am going to do this for you. I am binding myself to you. I'm committing myself to you in love. God doesn't have to do that, but he chooses to do that. In a little while, we're going to come to this table, 
and we are going to hear these words repeated to us, and it's Jesus, and he says, this is the cup that's poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. It signifies and seals my hesed, my love towards you. You see, at the table, Jesus is not just promising. It's not just his words. It's not just empty lip service. He's binding us to himself. In this society where faithfulness is something that we are lacking, we need somewhere to go where we can find security. We need to go to someone who has truly bound themselves to us. We need covenant. I don't know what confusion or unrest you're facing right now, what fears and doubts you carry, but I can tell you this, your only hope and security is to take yourself to the one who has made covenant with you. Because only there will you find true rest. Which is why uh, we need to move to this second fruit of living under the covenant. It's not just security that we find, but it's also privilege. What's interesting here is that David would have been well within his bounds to just take care of Mephibosheth, just to make sure he didn't get hurt. But when we're talking about hesed, this faithful love, there's a lot more than just protection. There's this privilege that comes with it. There's no more privileged position that I know of than royal treatment, right? To be a part of a royal family. We get glimpses of this when we observe the lives of Prince William or Prince Harry they don't appear to be struggling to get by. Their lives are, are rich, they're abundant. And what we see here is this royal treatment is what's being extended by David to Mephibosheth. Verse seven, he says, you will eat at my table always. And again, we might miss that, what's being said there, but those seats are reserved for family only. And so, David is saying to this man who is his enemy, you can sit at my table like one of my sons. You become a part of my family. You are now royalty with me. I'm a little hesitant to share this illustration because it profoundly reveals the ugliness of our society, but I think it speaks to what we're talking about here. Over the past few years, I've had the privilege of building a relationship with one of the ladies in my neighborhood and um, she'd been, she's been in my neighborhood long before we arrived. But about two years ago, she started getting these notices in the mail uh, about things that she needed to do to her home, repairs that she needed to do or else she'd be fined. Now, it's, you need to know that this lady's in her late 70s. She is illiterate and her finances are not very good. And so she's an easy target for uh, these people that wanted to... Um, take her house. And so, thankfully, I was able to get involved. I was able to uh, get to know her and set up a meeting where I was able to sit at the table with her in front of these people who had brought these charges to her. And I was able to tell them that you guys are not going to send her letters anymore, and we're not going to find her, and we're going to have to come up with a different solution. And you know what happened? She stopped getting letters. 
and we worked it out. And you know why that happened? And this is kind of the ugliness, but because I leveraged my wealth, my education, and my clout to get action, to make something happen. That's called privilege. And by her sitting next to me, although this is not something I'm proud of, she was able to be a co-beneficiary of my privilege. My privilege rubbed off on her. And although this illustration pales in comparison, it parallels nonetheless King Jesus when he brings us into his family and he seats us next to him, we become co-beneficiaries of his privilege. And his privilege is awesome. And we could go on and on and on about what his privilege entails, but I think the biggest picture of his privilege is that we have now access as children to our Heavenly Father. That's the meat of the privilege. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because we're seated seated next to Jesus, we can now draw near to the Heavenly Father that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To live in awareness of the covenant is to trust that you have access, that when you pray, God listens, that you have the right to interrupt the God of the universe, and he's not too busy, and he's not too tired, that he wants to meet with you. So I challenge you, lean into this privilege, this access that we have that's secured for us in this covenant that is sure. And finally, it's not only security and privilege that come through our awareness of God's covenant love, but also wonder. Webster defines wonder as rapt attention or astonishment at something awesomely mysterious. What a great definition. Wonder is the no ways in life. It's the how could this be moments. But I want to caution you here. This is so important because Mephibosheth becomes dangerously close to missing the wonder of the covenant. And the reason he almost misses it is because there's this very fine line between wonder and unbelief. Look again at verse 8. King David has just promised faithful covenant love to Mephibosheth, offered him a permanent seat at his family table, and then in verse 8, here's how Mephibosheth responds. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. I wonder how many in this room resonate with those words, dead dog like me. I wonder how many of us know in our heads that this offer of free grace has been extended to us and yet we're so covered up in shame that we can't accept it. I want to ask you this morning, is there something that is hindering you from receiving and resting in God's covenant love? Is there guilt and shame that is telling you that the covenant doesn't apply to a dead dog like you? Maybe it's that you look in the mirror and you're reminded that your heart for God has just faded. You feel like you're just going through the motions and you feel like, not me. I'm not worthy. 
Maybe it's that your time with the Lord that used to be a part of your daily life is now non-existent. And you think, eh, not a dead dog like me. Maybe it's that you lost your temper with your kids this morning and you're feeling like you're failing as a parent. Or maybe it's that you looked at pornography last night. You've been intimate with your boyfriend or girlfriend in ways that you know you shouldn't. Maybe it's that you're battling addiction or depression or anxiety and you're just ready to give up. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me that causes me to hear God's promise of covenant love and I say, no, no, God, you, you got, you've messed up. You've made a mistake. Not for a dead dog like me. That's that unbelief. But I know this, and I know that what this text is boldly declaring is that God's love is entirely based on promise and not on performance. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise. God has bound himself to us in love, and we are invited to rest in that security and appeal to that love in your darkest and loneliest hour. That's what a covenant provides for us. And so as we prepare to close, I want you to one last time look at our text and see if it doesn't evoke wonder in you. Don't forget that in our story, Mephibosheth, he's come to the house of David most certainly to die. And the text says in verse 6 that Mephibosheth throws himself on his face before the king. And I think we can rightly assume as a crippled man, this probably was incredibly painful to throw himself on the ground, and we can also rightly assume that he cannot get back up on his own after he's done this dramatic act. So what's Mephibosheth doing? Why does he throw himself before the king? Well, I think the reason he does this is because he understands all that is at play here. He understands that because of his bloodline, he is an enemy of David and he cannot do anything about that. And even more than that, He's aware that he is crippled in a society that cares nothing for the disabled. I think we should cringe when we hear this, but in this society, the, the, the crippled man, the crippled woman was useless, was cast aside, disposed of. Mephibosheth knows he has nothing to offer. He brings nothing to the table. And so Mephibosheth does the only thing that he has left to do. He falls on his faith and he says, mercy, Mercy, my king. I've got nothing to offer, no bartering tools. Mercy, King David. And David says, no. No way. Not mercy, grace. He says, I've covenanted with you, and because of that covenant, I give you grace. And David lifts him up, that which Mephibosheth could not do for himself, lifts him up and seats him at the table next to him. And he says, you are blessed forever and ever and ever in my family. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 reminds us that we are to identify with Mephibosheth. This is why we play this part. He has this repetition in verse 6, 8, and 10. I want to highlight it for you. Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak, verse 6. Verse 8, for while we were yet sinners, verse 10, while we were enemies, and you know the punchline, while we were weak sinners, 
enemies of God, what? Christ died for us. While we brought nothing to the table, while we were useless, of no use, sworn enemies to God, the hymn that we just sang, it so perfectly expresses who we are. Nothing in my hand I bring, naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We fall on our face and all we can do is say, mercy, God, mercy. And God says, no, no way. I give you grace. He says, I have covenanted with you. And he lifts us up and he seats us next to him and we become co-beneficiaries of all his goodness and love and grace. We become royalty, sons and daughters of the king. It's beautiful good news. What a savior that we have in Christ, that we might be brought into this royal family and that we might find security and privilege and wonder in that place. It's in light of this glory of this truth, whether you walked with God all your life or whether you are pondering the claims of Christ for the very first time, I challenge you to allow this to sink in, to meditate on the covenant, faithful love of God, and may it produce in you right now, today, security and privilege and wonder. No way, God. No way would you love someone like me. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to doubt. For many of us, the hardest part is that we can't get beyond this fact that we think we're a dead dog. That we see ourselves as wholly unworthy, which we recognize as true, and yet we cannot bring ourselves to face the reality that in our unworthiness you make us worthy that it is true that you have lifted us up and brought us in because you have this covenant promise that is sure that we can take to the bank. God, I pray for myself and for each person here who's failing to believe this glorious promise. I pray that it would not be empty words, but it would be a sure assurance that you love us, that you're not going anywhere and that we are forever richly blessed in your presence. God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.